guests on the East Coast. Of course, Dr. Michael E. Michael Jones is joining us this evening. You're in, I was listening to you today talking about, you wrote about the, the, a song about daylight saving time or yes, is that right? Yes. Yeah, that's where crisis, you are. Biggest crisis in Indiana since the Civil War, whether we should go on daylight savings time or not. And your state refused to, and they refused to change their clocks. Is that right, Indiana? In the, in the 70s, because one woman called into a talk show and she turned the entire tide with one statement. She said her lawn was already brown, and if it got one more hour a day of sunlight, it would kill it completely. And that, <laughs> that, that argument carried the day in Indiana for 40 years. 40 years, and then we uh, we capitulated to big, big East Coast influence, and now we're on daylight savings time. So I wrote a song about it, and it was the most popular song I sang at Fiddler's Heart uh, for the years that I played Irish music there. Yeah, we never spoke to you about I always wanted to ask you about that. What did you play? What do you play? The mandolin, uh, uh, the guitar. That's not particularly Irish, the mandolin. No. <laughs> well, it is when I it is when I play it. <laughs> and do you sing? I'd of course I is. sing. Of course I, I I wrote the song, so it was an incredibly popular song. I got repeated requests for it. I know I have I have seen you singing all right, but do you sing the traditional Irish ballads? What are you mean like the Fields of Athen Rye and I've Been a Wild Rover? Do you call them traditional? I suppose you would, yeah. Yeah, I don't sing. I don't sing in the Irish tongue. I don't know any songs like that. I'm I'm a little I'm a little bit conflicted here because I'm half Irish and half German. So I, half the time I sing Irish songs and half the time I sing German songs. I think you love Germany more than you love Ireland, though. Now, what an awful thing to say when I'm on Irish uh, an Irish podcast. Yeah, it's but you're more passionate thing. about. I wish you'd be as passionate about Ireland as you are about those Germans. Mm -hmm. That have messed the whole thing up for us. So, German, don't blame the victim, Gemma. No, we have won't. to. Get, we should get into that uh, because this is the this is where our future is being decided right now. Once again, once again, it's Germany as the center of the universe. Germany, the place where the Holocaust narrative was created and then imposed on all of us Catholics, whether we were German or not. And now the situation is coming to a head once again in Germany. I'm talking about the pipeline. Pipeline being blown up. Uh, has, has that made the news in Ireland? Has everybody ignored it by now? Well, I was just explaining to you that I can't, I don't know what makes the news. Well, I do. And it's all just propaganda. I just don't listen to it. I've no idea from one day to the next what is making the news. I imagine it's just all boosters, COVID. <clears throat> climate and Irish are racist, the Irish are racist. But I mean, I, I have a theory about this. I don't know if this pipeline was blown up at all. I just don't think they have the ability to do something like that. And we were talking about the bubbles. That's the only evidence. But this story caught your attention here on Bloomberg. Gazprom ready to ship gas. Yeah, well, well for, for, first of all, the, the, the story of the pipeline being blown up was mentioned and immediately dropped. This was a, a clearly a story that the uh, the government, the, the CIA, did not want to get legs. It, 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 this uh, to, to give you the opposite, 
the Iranian hijab story has been going on for weeks and weeks and weeks. That's a, a CIA operation to basically overthrow the government in Iran. So that gets, uh, whenever they uh, want to distract you, they put that story because the, the, it's already, you know, brave women, brave feminist takes off her headscarf. We got, we, we're getting that over and over and over again. This is different. Yeah. Okay, this, this happened and then it immediately disappeared. And it's obvious, well, they had to say something about it, but they don't want to talk about it uh, because this is an absolutely crucial issue because so, the, the oligarchs, are so drunk with power that they they're, they're staggering around doing absolutely crazy things. And this is one of the craziest things, one of the most reckless acts of terrorism I have seen in my lifetime. Uh, the pipeline is going from Russia to, to Germany. Germany needs energy because it's a, uh, an industrial country. It makes high quality industrial products. Uh, and it has to sell them abroad to get the money it needs to feed itself. It, it can't feed itself. There are too many people and too little land. So this is an existential issue. The uh, Germany and Russia, over this period of time, we're getting closer and closer together. Uh, and this set off alarm bells at the CIA because the, the, the plan, the hidden grammar of the CIA is the hidden grammar of the Anglo-American empire. And that is basically the, uh, the McKinder thesis, which is basically anyone who controls the Eurasian landmass controls the world. England and the United States, and Ireland was part of this for a while, are island nations. They need sea power. Britannia ruled the waves with the British Navy. This means it can go in, uh, sail up any river you have and bombard your cities and blockade your ports and starve you to death. It can't do this for the Eurasian landmass because it's too big, largely and because of the Ukraine, which can feed a lot of people. So as a result, anytime Germany looks as if it's getting close to Russia, uh, some uh, English speaker is going to uh, try and lure them into a war. First example, or the best example was World War One when Lord Grey and Winston Churchill lured Germany and Russia into a war where they were going to destroy each other. Uh, that uh, after World War I, Churchill starved the Germans to death, blockading, blockading their ports. The, the numbers varied. Hundreds of thousands of Germans starved to death after Germany signed an armistice. This caused huge amounts of resentment. And the man who capitalized on that resentment was Adolf Hitler. And he came to power and again, there was a second war here with uh, England and Germany, and that war ended in 45. And that is the beginning of the era that we live in now, which is the era of the American empire. And the main, uh, the founding narrative of the American empire is the Holocaust. So Germany was conquered. Wait, wait, sorry, just, I know that we have discussed it, but I, this, I, this is a theme. I just want you to explain that line that the founding narrative of the American empire is the Holocaust. Just explain that. Well, it, it gives uh, American identity. What is, what is, the, what is the narrative uh, that America is now projecting throughout the world? America uh, fought the Nazis to save the Jews. Mm -hmm. These people were helpless. They were victims. 
America is always the friend to the underdog and we will save you by uh, that. We, we're reluctant to get into a war, but when we do, we finish the job. And that's the story. And that gave the American, that was the American empire. It was a force for good in the world. Us all. So sure, we'd all be speaking German now if it wasn't for the Americans and the British. That's, that's the right. narrative. Yeah. That's right. They would have conquered the world. And so it's a benign, it's a benign power. Of course, we had a little struggle then with communism, with the Soviet Union, but then we won out uh, then too. And we are a benign superpower and we promote freedom, right? We bring freedom to places like Ireland. You poor Democracy. people. You poor people, you know, you didn't have abortion. You didn't have gay marriage and the American empire brought those gifts to you. And now you're, you're, you should be grateful. And if you're not shame on you, and this is basically the whole world right now, we'll bring uh, these gifts to you. And if you don't like it, we'll blow you up. And that's exactly. So the, the, the Germans became guinea pigs in the biggest social ex, uh, engineering experiment in the in world history. Never before had the powers been unleashed of psychological subversion and persuasion and hidden persuasion and things like that. And they went along with it. And I'm, I've talked, I think I talked to you before about how Ratzinger, Cardinal Ratzinger was one of the victims of it. He was 20 years old in 1947. 46, 47 was a significant year in Germany. It's called Das Hungerjahr. It was the year in which Germans almost starved to death because of a plan called the Morgenthau Plan. Mr. Morgenthau was Secretary of the Treasury. His plan was to punish Germany because the, it wasn't the Nazis. It was the German people. They are bad people. They have bad DNA and they have to be punished. And his plan was to basically de-industrialize Germany. Okay, take the Ruhr, give it to someone else. Uh, tear down all the factories and turn Germany into one big potato patch. This was Goebbels. Goebbels got uh, an advanced copy of the Morgenthau plan. He gave one of the most effective uh, propaganda broadcasts during the entire war. And he said, der Jude, der Jude Morgenthau uh, will Deutschland, will the industry zerstören und Deutschland in ein großen Kartoffelfeld lagen. That's my approximation. He wants to destroy our industry and turn Germany into one big potato patch. That was an incredibly effective uh, piece of Sorry, propaganda. That, what was that, the start of his name? The Jewish Joseph, Morgenthau. The, the, the Jude Morgenthau. The Jew Morgenthau. His first the name is Jew. Henry. Yes. Yeah, people don't say that anymore. And if you say it, they compare you to Goebbels. But uh, the fact of the matter is that at this point, we, we are witnessing now in the United States an attempt to rehabilitate Mr. Morgenthau. Now, he was discredited back then because there were people who understood that they were Christians and the Christians did not behave like Jews. This was part of the American patrimony. It was the part of the Protestant patrimony. And there were people like uh, Cordell Hull in the State Department who did not like this plan. He's... Uh, Herbert Hoover, the former president, was uh, mobilizing the people against it, and they carried the day. They carried the day. What we're seeing now is Morgenthau 2.0. Exactly the same thing. What this did, you have no idea of how traumatizing this effect was on the Germans. 
The Germans are okay. now, they're involved in the war in the Ukraine because uh, we are the masters and they are the vassals. And we, uh, uh, Olaf Scholz is just a docile puppet of American interest. And uh, he, they yank his chain and he goes, now he's involved in fighting Russia because the Americans told him to do that. Okay, and he shut off his own pipeline. The, the Nord Stream, Gerhard Schroeder was the former prime minister, and he worked with the Russians to build the pipelines that will bring gas to gas from Russia to Germany. Germany needs energy. They have high tech. They have high technology. Russia needs technology, and they have plenty of energy. It's a marriage made in heaven. It was inevitable that this was going to happen. And as soon as it looks as if it's going to happen, the Americans, the Americans are getting very upset. Because if Germany has energy independence from the United States, uh, it, the United States can't tell it what to do anymore. That's the, so, as, so as we're, we're going into the winter here, we're heading into winter. Uh, uh, Schultz has shut off the pipeline. They don't have enough gas to heat their homes or to have the factories running or to feed the people. It looks like Hunger Yard, that's Hunger Yard 2.0. We're going back to 46, 47. The yeah. Germans are aware of this. They're going to the streets and they're demanding either the fall of the Schultz government or turn on the pipeline. Now, the Americans are aware of this. Biden warned everybody. You've probably seen these videos. Biden says, if Russia invades Ukraine, we're going to put an end to the pipeline. Mm -hmm. Victoria Newland, the lady who created this mess in the first place, with the coup in uh, Ukraine, she said exactly the same thing. There was broad uh, bipartisan support of this idea. Donald Trump was against the pipeline. Everyone knew that it meant a kind of independence for Germany, which we are not going to allow. So there are big demonstrations now. Uh, winter is coming. We want the pipeline. We, the people who are marching in the streets, and we want the pipeline to turn it on. And at this point, the Americans acted and took it off the table by blowing up the pipeline. An incredible act of terrorism against the German people, exactly in line with the Morgenthau plan. So suddenly it becomes clear all of that social engineering that was supposed to rehabilitate the Germans, those bad people. No, it was there to destroy them. And this is a lesson that everyone in Europe has to take to heart. Because if you destroy Germany, you're going to destroy Europe as well. Europe cannot exist at the level it exists right now of prosperity without the contribution of German industry. It's that simple. It cannot do this. And that is precisely what's going to, what they were planning to do. Get Germany now once again fighting Russia in a mutually destructive war that will destroy Europe as a competitor to the United States. And then the United States will simply walk in and buy up its assets at pennies on the dollar and suck away their workforce. It's all a repeat of what happened after World War II. That plan has never changed. It's always been the Morgenthau plan in the background. And the point is, when you allow the Jews a controlling to be a controlling force in your foreign policy, they're going to go back to it. That's exactly what happened because the Jews never forget. And, and vengeance is a virtue for a Jew. It's not a virtue for a Christian, but to the extent that we have all um, abandoned uh, the Catholic faith, 
abandoned Christian morality, uh, we have become slaves to the Jews. That's the situation we're in right now. Now, go ahead, so get, now what? we'll get back to this thing, what you just mentioned here. It looked as if we were a fait accompli. Uh, one of the commentators said that the Greens uh, were complicit in this. First of all, the Greens are trying to de-industrialize de Germany. They've been trying this for years now in the name of ecology. I suspect they're just being proxy warriors for the Jews, and they can earn points with the Jewish uh, controllers uh, uh, by prom promoting the, the Morgenthau plan all over again. So we wake up this morning. I get an email from Ron Unz. It turns out that they didn't blow up the pipeline. Now, they blew up three of the pipes, but there are four. And there's one that is still serviceable. And suddenly that whole political option is back on the table after the Greens and the Americans thought they had taken it off. We're back to where we were before it happened, because now it's a political decision. And the government, the government is going to have to say, uh, we could turn it on, but we're not going to turn it on. And so we are responsible for the fact that you're shivering in your apartment and you lost your job. Now, any, how any government can stand up to that type of accusation is beyond me. So this is a huge crisis right now. And because the Americans did it, they showed their hand. They showed their hand. All right, Americans, maybe it's, it's the Jewish control of our foreign policy. They are still looking for vengeance because of what happened during World War II. They are the enemy of the German people. They're not an ally. With friends like this, you don't need enemies. That's the situation we're in right now. Yeah, I mean, we're getting rolling blackouts here in Ireland. And, you know, just parts of South Dublin suddenly go black. Um, and rural Ireland is the same. And it's a sort of, you know, getting people used to the idea, you know, you better get your candles ready. You better realize they're, you know, this this is going to become more. It's just an easing, easing people gently in. Right. I'm sure you've heard of the German discounters, um, Aldi and Lidl, which really are at the bottom of the, you know, they're, they're just really the worst sort of place you can buy your food in. But a lot of sadly, a lot of Irish people go there they're starting to empty out their shelves. Now they're blaming the farmers, but the farmers are sort of working in cahoots with them. It's the farming lobby is working with them. And I was in one of their shops yesterday in the Northwest and basically most of the shelves were empty. All the bread, dairy and meat was gone. So it's an easing people in gently to what the EU has in store for us uh, which is basically to starve us out again. I mean, we're not in any doubt about that anymore. It's what, how the people react and what they do to stop it. Yeah, yeah. I Look, this is also a continuation of COVID. COVID, COVID was population control. There, there are people like uh, King Charles III now and uh, Klaus Schwab and Bill Gates and all those people. They believe there are too many people in the world. The, fundam the fundamental uh, document of English thought is Malthus, Malthus's uh, essay on population. Malthus had Ireland in mind when he wrote that. There, he, he's talking about the world as if it's an island, 
The world is not an island. An island is a small place that's surrounded by water. That is not, certainly not the Eurasian landmass. That's not what that is. The biggest chunk of land in the world is the Eurasian landmass. Okay? He was convinced that there are just too many people in because Ireland was his model. He felt that there were too many Irish there. And so you had to take measures to keep these populated, to cull the herd, to reduce the population. They have never gone back on that. Never. Never. And the most convincing explanation for COVID was that it was part of that same plan. It was the same people doing this over and over and over again. And famine becomes a way of reducing the population or destroying the population. Ireland obviously found itself in exactly that situation. So they're no stranger to starvation. Many Americans uh, are Americans because of the Irish potato famine, because it was simply impossible to get gainful employment uh, in Ireland, where uh, the staple of food was was the potato. Uh, yeah. So th th this, this is not, I'm trying to connect the dots here, it's because America I'm getting it from both here. sides. It's America, we're both here. It's America, any of us Irish are here, in fact, because the efforts to starve us out were so intense by the Crown. You know, it really does speak a lot. There's another group of people who do a lot of whinging about the, the attempted annihilation of them, which we discovered did not happen. Um, but we as Irish people, we never go on about the fact that the, the attempt to completely wipe us out uh, through their starvation genocide. Um, you know, it, it is a miracle that we are here as a people. But I want to get on to that now. And we want to discuss your theory that when did Irish people become white, Michael? When when did this idea of us being because I never considered I had never up until recently, maybe and even now I don't consider myself white. The Irish never had to use that term on um, because there were only really two black people in Ireland up until, say, the early 2000s. Um, I'll, I'll give you a very concrete example. My wife was teaching kindergarten in Southwest Philadelphia, which was uh, formerly had been an Irish neighborhood and now it was becoming a black neighborhood. Uh, the ethnic cleansing of the Irish was taking place from parishes like Most Blessed Sacrament Parish. Uh, so around 1972, no, let's say 71, this is around the time that she was teaching there, 70, 71. Sorry, where, uh, where was where this? Was is this? Southwest Philadelphia. Okay. Okay. So uh, an Irish family moves into the neighborhood. I guess they heard that most blessed sacrament was Irish, but they didn't realize that they were being ethnically cleansed at this point. They, they, they walked into a war zone and the problem was they didn't know they were white. They thought they were Irish. I don't know where they came from in Ireland, but they woke up. Let's say you wake up in Cork or you wake up in Dublin and you, you look around. Well, we're all Irish, aren't we? You don't become white until you come in contact with a group that is black. And that is precisely what happened in, in America at this time. So the boy thinks, well, well you know, I'm, I'm Irish. Nobody, people here don't hate the Irish, but the black gang thought he was white and they killed him. He got killed because he thought they thought he was white and he thought he was Irish. Now, that's in a, in a nutshell what happened over here uh, during this period, this revolutionary period of the 1950s, the post-war period. 
the post-war period was characterized by social engineering. A social engineering in means moving populations around. That's what it is right now. We, Europe is undergoing a ferocious form of social engineering with all this migration that's being orchestrated to basically destroy the uh, ethnic uh, unity, the ethnic culture uh, where the people arrive. Exactly the same thing happened in Philadelphia, except that we didn't bring them in from Africa. Uh, the people, the Ford Foundation, uh, collaborated with black ministers to bring them up from North and South Carolina, where they were agricultural workers. They brought them in. And that's, I'll tell you when uh, my family became white. It was 1954. They became white. Uh, I, be, I was living, we were living in an Irish parish in North Philadelphia. The blacks crossed Lehigh Avenue on their march north and everybody moves out. Everybody moves out. It was panic. It was called blockbusting, where the real estate agents would manipulate uh, panic so that you everyone would move out once. The price of the house would drop precipitously. They'd pick it up with a, uh, for a song, and then they'd gouge the back black families that they sold it to. So uh, we were Irish when we lived in North Philadelphia, and then we moved to another part of the city, which was technically, it was, it was a suburb for all intents and purposes, and whenever the Catholic ethnics moved to the suburbs, they became white. So that's when they became white over this period of time. Why, there was, why did you all, all leave? Why did you all leave? Why? <laughs> that's a, it's, in many ways, it's a complicated question. My, all of my father's Irish relatives lived in this neighborhood. They all, I, look, I was, what was I, five years old? No one was talking to me about why this was going on. I don't know why. The, I just know that everybody left. It was time to leave. Everybody moved into the same neighborhood so they could be together because every everyone left. That's a good question, and I can't. It was panic. I, it's a rhetorical question. I mean, I'm. I look. If you look at what happened to Ireland in the 1980s and 90s, suddenly we saw all these Germans and Brits moving to the most remote parts of West Cork, and you know, Donegal, places like the furthest over of what part of Western Europe because they'd had enough of mass immigration, especially the Brits. And they thought we'll go to the whitest part of Europe. And now they've colonized, you know, parts of Cork. And, you know, you go there and, and all you hear is sort of new age hippie English accents. But anyway, that's another story. But that's exactly what the same thing that happened in um in those Irish parishes of Chicago, Boston, Philadelphia. It New wasn't York. just the Irish. It was all of the major Catholic yeah. ethnic groups. It was the, the Germans were fairly assimilated by that time, but certainly the Italians uh, and the Poles, uh, the Irish, the Germans, they were the four big uh, ethnic groups. And it had all of them, not because they were Irish so much, but because they were Catholic. That was the big common denominator. I mean, the book I wrote on this is called The Slaughter of Cities. And I got into the archives and read the writings of the, the man who orchestrated this, the, man, the, the, the brains behind it. It was a Jew from Germany by the name of Louis Wirth, who taught sociology at the University of Chicago. And then he, he was work. He started off working for uh, the Office of War Information, which was the predecessor to the CIA during World War II. They sent him to. Detroit, uh, which had the biggest race riot in America in 1942, 
to under to find find out the causes of this, and he came up with a basically a description uh, of uh, what happened there in light of what his real allegiance was, because he was communist and he was watching the way Stalin was dealing with ethnic uh, groups, assimilating ethnic groups in the Soviet Union, which was basically moving them around, putting them in alien places. Like take the Ukrainians and move them to Poland. Take my my uh, daughter, my Russian daughter-in-law. Uh, her grandmother was German. Uh, uh, one of the Volga Deutsch that came over in the 18th century, descended of that, and she ended up in Siberia because there were no Germans in Siberia. Put them and isolate them. Louis Wears is reading this these reports from the Soviet Union. He's implementing them in America. Basically, a way of breaking up these groups that he said could not be trusted. That's a word that he said in one of the memos. And then he lists the groups that cannot be trusted. And guess what? It's the Irish, Poles, the Italians, and the Germans. Now, the Italians and the Germans were at war with the United States at this particular period of time. But the Poles, uh, the Irish were neutral, and the Poles were allies. Well, what do they have in common? What they have in common is they're Catholic. And I've been trying to tell the white boys for years now that this is your identity when you come to America. Three religions make up three ethnic groups, and that's the ethnic constituency of America. So these people, the Irish, the Poles, the Italians, and the Germans over in Europe well, sometimes they fight wars with each other. Sometimes they don't like each other, but they or they just lived off by themselves. When they all come into America, the common denominator is that they're all Catholic. And suddenly they have political power because of that that they did not have uh, in Europe. And that was the source of the problem. And people like Louis Worth felt that Catholics were taking over the world at this point. And he was going to take care of that by basically ethnic, ethnically cleansing them from their, from their neighborhoods. So when you lived in Chicago... In the Polish neighborhood, when you lived in Marquette Park uh, in Chicago, you were a Lithuanian. When Martin Luther King came to your uh, neighborhood and drove you out and you went to the suburb, you became white. That's when it happened. And why, Mike, should we resist the temptation to call ourselves white? Why should we see that as a derogatory term? <laughs> because it is a derogatory term. Where have you been? It's the one thing that is bad now. And if it, well, it, yeah. it's, it's, related, it's related to the Holocaust narrative. Because what you're saying, if you're white, that means you're a white supremacist. And if you're a white supremacist, that means you're a Nazi. And if you're a Nazi, that means you persecute Jews. And so you're a bad person and you have no rights whatsoever. So if you can maneuver your opponent into this position... He has no right and can't object, and you win the argument. This is exactly what I boarded in St. Louis. There was a Muslim there. This was the, the wave of iconoclasm. We're going to tear down all the statues, and suddenly this group of people show up uh, in St. Louis. They're going to take down the statue of St. Louis. What's that got to do with whiteness? Did St. Louis have slaves? Did he own cotton plantations? No. It was really what it was about was the balance of power in St. Louis, which was a Catholic city. But the Catholics had been victims of identity theft. 
ever since the war, ever since the social engineering took place. And so this man simply carried it to its logical conclusion and said, all those people who are defending the statue, they're all white supremacists. You look at them, they're praying the rosary. Do white supremacists pray the rosary? No, this is identity theft. This is exactly why if you identify as white, you're going to lose. First of all, I'm not white. I'm biracial. I'm Irish and German. And if you want to ask me really what I am, I'm a Catholic because that is the designation of ethnic identity in America. Okay? So what you do then, in effect, there are people who uh, deliberately identify this way, and they set themselves up uh, to lose. So the classic example was Charlottesville, where Richard Spencer leads a group of people, and we white boys, we're going to take over. We're going to show you. We're going to defend the statue of uh, uh, General Lee. Well, he led them into a trap. Now, he did it either wittingly or unwittingly, and I can't, I don't have no one way or the other. But basically, I've said it before. He handed out spears to the white boys and he said, charge the machine gun nest. And they all got mowed down, surprisingly. This is, this is the politics that's going on now. In Canada, when the poor truckers were losing money and they wanted uh, uh, to get rid of the COVID regulations, they drive their trucks to Ottawa. And instead of meeting with them, Justin Trudeau, who is ever, if there were ever a stooge of the oligarchs, is Justin Trudeau. He, instead of meeting with him, the people who's, who he represents as their leader, he denounces them as neo-Nazis. Well, you won the, that's how you win every battle right now. You accuse the people that you don't like of being anti-Semitic or Nazis or something like that. And then you win the argument and they're demonized. And that's the end of the story. It's just such a ridiculous term. It really is. Like, I remember the first time I was called neo-Nazi because I was talking about mass immigration in Ireland and how we would become a minority. And the, and the word they chose to call me was neo-Nazi. And I was, okay, well, I'm not talking about Jews. I'm not, I haven't mentioned the word Jew. Where did I say I'm anti-Jew? I mean, I'm not saying now I've moved my position <laughs> and I understand that they're responsible for most all of this mess that we're in. But, you know, at the time there was no mention and it's so nonsensical and ridiculous, these labels that they use. But you prefer to see rather than the black and white, because that is uh, we're, uh, you know, really not going to win the debate if we use those terms. We they, need they, to they created racial conflict because the best way to control people is to divide and conquer, divide and rule. And you basically you've divided a group. Uh, Along these very visible lines. Okay, you look white, you look black, uh, you can identify as this. It's easy for people who are, are, are challenged by coming up with their own categories of the mind. And so it's simple. The, co the country got into this, the, they got in simultaneously into racial narrative and social engineering at the same time with one Supreme Court decision, and that was Brown versus School Board, which was basically the school, this decision that. Uh, desegregated schools in the South. The gist of that, and this is not me, this is the head of the AJC, Murray Friedman, who wrote a book on it, was Jewish science. It was basically the American Jewish Committee had brought all of these uh, sociologists over from Germany. Uh, the Frankfurt School had come over. They wrote these studies like the authoritarian personality. And then they, they used it to basically impose the racial narrative on the United States of America. That is not 
the grammar of the United States of America. I don't care how many. I, there are plenty of black people here. I just had an incident. I go, I'm sitting in the park next to this nice fountain that they just built. And there's this black lady. And we start talking. Well, I guess what we, we end up talking about. You talk about your family. You talk about God. You talk. These are religious people. The point here is, if we yeah. talk about religion, this unites us. Because we're, we're this, this religion, the Christianity, by nature unites people from all over the world. We're not focusing on race. We're not. This is South Bend is not a place where race has been weaponized. There were no riots here when Black Lives Matter was burning down cities elsewhere in this country. It it naturally, over a period of time, if you have a Christian culture and you're not overburdening the culture with weaponized migration, people who are Christians will get to get to learn how to get along with each other. That was the South. It could have it could have been that way. There could have been a gradual uh, replacement of the segregation system, but the Jews had to weaponize it. the The civil rights movement was a Jewish uh, a Jewish uh, attack on the South. It's that simple. That's what it was. The Jewish revolutionaries had been trying to create a slave rebellion in the South ever since the Leo Frank case, when he got the Jew got lynched. And all of this, I have received my three editions, this beautiful, if you want to wake people up, this is the ideal gift for them. Um, sorry, I'm going to mess that up. <laughs> that is the first edition, and the, they come in the most... This is the second, this is the second edition. This is the second edition. Oh, yeah, but the, oh, sorry, but the three books... No, volume one, volume two, volume, volume three. Volume one, volume two, volume three. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Absolutely beautiful. The Jewish revolutionary spirit. And it is the ultimate guide to understanding how all of this happened. And, you know, you, you talk about the synagogue of Satan. You talk about um, Rome discovers the Talmud, the Freemasonic element, the Freemasonic connection with, with Judaism. And uh, the amount of detail, I mean, really, people who haven't read this book cannot really understand what has happened to Ireland and to Western civilization. That's right. That's right. So I would highly recommend Fidelity Press or CultureWars.com to get that book. We have a great chat. There's an awful lot of people in the chat this evening. So sorry that we are neglecting you, but I... I just don't want to lose a second of um, these fantastic um, thoughts and ideas and arguments that E. Michael Jones has. Now, this, I want to. This, yeah. this will allow you to escape. The, the, the shackles will fall from your hands once you start, mm -hmm. once you have categories like this. You'll understand what's going on. You won't be a prisoner to the racial narrative. You won't be pushed around by ideas that you just don't understand. So thank you for yeah. recommending the book. Well, you know, there's no country, there's no people more than the Irish that should really understand the Catholic identity because that's what we fought for for hundreds of years. You know, the right to receive Holy Communion and not to um, ad adopt the Book of Common Prayer. You know, people say it was a fight between the Irish and the English. It wasn't. 
it was a fight between Protestantism and Catholicism. And that is what that is why I say Catholic first, Irish second. Or to be Irish means to be Catholic. End of story. And it's not all about, you know, the practice of the faith. It is about the morality of it. It is about the lifestyle, right. the only road to happiness, the only road yeah. to understanding why we are here and what our purpose in life is. So, um, but you you categorize according to three. There's three categories, Catholicism, Protestantism, and Judaism. They're the categories you think we should see ourselves through. No, no, I don't think the Irish should see themselves that way at all. It's, in Ireland, it was pretty much a Protestant Catholic battle. The triple melting pot is a, is a, is an explanation of ethnicity in the United States of America, because yeah, it was sure, always sure. kind of mysterious. Because, you know, okay, so I, I mean, I'm an example of it. I mean, my, my father's side is Irish, my mother's side is German. At that point in history, with the, the second generation, moving into the second generation, the identity was Catholic. Every single, uh, my gr Irish grandfather had six children. Uh, every single one of them, uh, no, one of them, one died. One of them married another Irishman. And the, all the rest married different ethnic groups, you would think, like Poles, Germans, Italians. But they were all Catholic. This is just kind of proof that this was, everyone recognized a kind of ethnic identity at that point. Yes. As Catholicism. Because <laughs> at a certain point, if the Poles and the, the Irish and the Germans and the Italians are all getting married, what does it mean? What I, I'm, My identity is I'm an American. My grandfather came from Cork. Uh, but I'm an American. And my, uh, the, are you telling me I don't have an identity? No, I do have an identity, and it's Catholic. Now, it's, a simple, it's similar to all these situations in Europe. Europe was a creation of the Catholic Church. If it weren't for the Catholic Church, the Germans would still be chasing pigs through the forest. But what you saw over the period of modern history, beginning, let's say, with the Reformation, but accelerating with the French Revolution, was basically the abandonment uh, of Catholicism. And so the the Civita Cattolica did a series uh, in 1890 on the Jewish question. This was a time when the church could actually address the Jewish question. I mean, it's amazing to think that. And what did they say at the end of it? They said, basically, if your country continues to uh, create laws that are inspired by the French Revolution, you will wait in vain for liberation from the Jews. That's what happened to France. Over that century after the French Revolution, uh, the French lost control of their culture. It became mm -hmm. a, a revolutionary culture. It became capitalism. Uh, it became Jewish capitalism. That became the, the, the identity masquerading as some type of revolutionary ideology. That has happened consistently. One European country after another, Ireland being a late example of this, preserving their ethnic Catholic identity into the 1980s, as far as I can tell, where yeah. they made it, insisted that abortion was a crime and, and illegal, put it into the Constitution. Mm -hmm. How did it happen? It's very simple how it happened. It's because uh, you, you, the Irish people, like a lot of the rest of the world, were lured into sexual liberation because we're all tempted in this regard. 
And once you got habituated to that, you lost your ability to pray and you lost your identity. And now you've got a different identity and now you're slaves. This is, in Philadelphia, I was just back in Philadelphia giving a talk, talking to people living in the suburbs. There were all of these Catholic uh, high schools in the suburbs. I went to one of them was for boys, but there were nuns, groups of nuns uh, at these academies for girls. And we used to go to mixers. It was great. You know, you get a chance, civilized way of meeting girls. You know, it was great. Okay. But what happened over this period of time is that all the nuns became feminist yeah. in the wake of Vatican II. And when they became feminist, they started preaching sexual liberation or let's say one way or the other, relaxing the sexual morality that their parents had uh, grown up under. And when they get involved in sexual liberation, uh, uh, more often than not, you get pregnant. And then when you get pregnant, you get an abortion. And when you get an abortion, abortion is the Jewish sacrament. I've said it repeatedly. The Jews are defending me in this type of thing. When you get an abortion, you become a Jew. It's that simple because you have participated in the Jewish sacrament. Now, what do I mean when I say you become a Jew? Most important thing politically is you start voting like a Jew. And what you're seeing right now in the wake of Roe versus Wade, when that gets overturned, is uh, the Democratic Party is mobilizing the guilt that women feel when they have an abortion. And they're politically mobilizing it and they're using this basically. They're, they're planning in, under the worst president in history, the history of the United States of America. Joe Biden is without a doubt the worst president. And they're planning to retain control of Congress simply because these ladies these guilt-ridden ladies are going to vote Democrat because they had abortions. That's the strategy. Whether it happens, we'll see. But that's the strategy. Yeah, that's it. Absolutely. And this is, I, I want to talk about the degeneracy that's rampant within our own government. This is the Minister for Children, Roderick O'Gorman, who's got um, some issues with uh, well, I, you know, I mean, I, I, where do we start with this man? But anyway, he's claiming that huge progress has been made in women's health care. Women aged 17 to 25 might can now access free contraception. And the scheme will actually hold on. It, um, But they're actually going to bring it in to under to 16s as well which is under, I think he's actually changed this, but uh, there you go, free contraception. We oh, should be- Lord. We're all free We're no longer now. repressed Catholics. Listen, you know what this Freedom. is? Freedom. Yeah, this is when, when, you, when you stole Trevelyan's corn, when your ancestors stole Trevelyan's corn, they put you on a prison ship and they sent you to Australia. You know what you're doing now? You're, you're putting your hands up and saying, please put those handcuffs on me. I want to be a slave. I want to be a slave to my passions. That a man has as many masters as he has vices. That's exactly what's going on here. And these politicians are bragging about the fact that they're enslaving the German people, the Irish people here. When are the Irish going to wake up? This is not freedom. Why do you think it's free? Why do you think they're promoting this? Because they want these young ladies to get into bad habits at an early age so that they'll never be able to change them. Now, they can change them. Everybody knows you can change them. 
Okay, because if they can control your sex life, they control you. And you will end up like the the uh, the, the ladies that uh, went to the Catholic schools in Philadelphia and ended up being taught by feminists. And you become a sexual robot and you have an abortion and your conscience is now a possession of the Democratic Party or whoever's doing this in Ireland. And you become a slave uh, to the new masters. These, these, why, why are these people? Why, why are the Irish on trying to understand? Why, why can't they see that people who are trying to enslave their children by corrupt intermorals are bad for the country? Why is that so difficult to understand? Look, I mean, this is pedophilia. This, uh, the, the tweet that I was looking for, I couldn't find it there, but I have it here on my phone. And they're actually expanding this to women aged 16. Women age 16. 16 year olds are not women. They are girls. They're girls. They're, they're children. So the Minister for Children in Ireland is offering free contraception to 16 year olds. And you know, the greatest tragedy in all this, Mike, is that their parents, who are the generation who grew up under RTE telling them, RTE being the state broadcaster, telling them that Ireland of the 80, pre, pre-80s was very repressed, very repressed. The Irish didn't really even, they saw sex as a sin. Outside of marriage, a sin. Imagine how repressed they were. So the parents of these children will actually be going along with this. This is how tragic it is because they think if their children are out, they're going to get pregnant. If they're having sex, they're going to do it anyway. There's no role at all for, well, what about abstention? What about that? That's what we were educated under Dominican nuns. You just don't do it. You don't do it because A, you'll end up, you know, in a in in poverty. You'll have a miserable life and you might get all sorts of diseases, etc. And also socially, you'll be considered a slut. Is that what you want? But now they're told the exact opposite. They're told go out and be sexual and we we'll put you on a pill which will help to sterilize you. And the parents think, yeah, well, I don't want them, you know, having children, bringing home grandchildren, which I'm going to have to look after. So the parents go along with it. It's very depressing. <laughs> yes. And you will look, I've had the experience at the, uh, at the opposite end of this uh, trajectory, uh, when people started reading Libido Dominandi, Sexual Liberation and Political Control, you had a, a whole generation who were slaves to pornography. But why is it so? Why is it so easy to access pornography? This wasn't. This did not exist when I was a teenager. It all came in between then and now, largely because of the group we're talking about. The Jews were in the forefront of decriminalizing pornography, promoting pornography, because they knew it was a way of weakening the majority culture and taking it over. And they succeeded. Well, nothing has changed. That's exactly what it is. So I come in on the tail end of this. And uh, let's say around 2019, I don't have to tell people they're slaves. They know it. They're totally addicted to pornography, a whole generation. Yeah. So I said, yeah. no, it's a, it's a form of control. Suddenly the light went on. Oh, yeah. Now I understand that. I'm totally controlled by this thing. 
you know? And at that point, some of them simply changed. A lot of them changed. And they would write to me and say, you know, I, I listened to what you were saying. I changed my life. I'm married now. And I have a, I have a child. I have two children. Now, that means you've got a life. You've got a real life. You're not living in your mother's basement addicted to this machine that is created to enslave you. You have a real life. So do you want a real life? Uh, uh, let's, let's get real about this thing. Let's talk about the addiction, and the, uh, especially among the males. Let's talk about the ladies who get their hearts broken uh, because they're being groomed. Let's be honest here. A whole city in England, turns out, it was just grooming teenage girls to have sex with their uh, immigrants. Well, who set that in motion? It was the idea of sex education, the idea of sexual liberation. All of these ideas set these people up. Are they happier because of that? No, no. And like that could never have happened in a country. Okay, people will say, I was going to say in a country like Ireland, the Ireland I grew up in, because we had fathers who were very, very protective of their daughters. And when you look at the likes of Rotherham and you know, where these appalling rape gangs have been operating, you have to say, where were the parents? Where are the parents? Why are these 15-year-old girls going out and even getting into the company of Muslim men who, you know, have only one intention for them? Why are they so sexualized at that age? Because uh, of school, because of the media. It's very simple. Who, They're taught yeah, but, to be sexualized. You know, they spend more time at home than they do at school. Like it's the, I do believe what, that the parents have utterly failed them. All right. I understand. But how, what is, how did the parents fail them? By depriving them of the access to the media that corrupted them. So uh, when I, uh, yeah. who are we talking about? You're talking about, people who are probably the age of my children because I have grandchildren who are that age now. Okay. Yeah. So, so even I, in my uh, benighted early days in the depths of my apostasy uh, uh, from the Catholic church, I knew the television was toxic. I knew it. I knew it. I, so when I got married in 1969, we never had a television. People, people would come up to me and offer me a television. It's like, I know what this is like. It's like the first shot of heroin. You know, you're, and I said, no, I don't want it. I don't want it. Even then I could understand it. And so over this period of time, uh, you had people telling, uh, inciting sexual desire. Even in its tame version, it wasn't tame at the point, but that, that was kind of the point of this. And the man, the, the man who wrote the book on this was Wilhelm Reich, the Jew, the communist, the Freudian, who said, if you, if you want to corrupt the Catholic Church, don't argue with them. You'll always lose the argument. Get them involved in sexual behavior, like homosexuality or ma masturbation was his great crusade. Well, he's right. Either you pray or you masturbate. If you pray, you don't masturbate. If you masturbate, you don't pray. He figured that out. And the Jews in America put that plan into action over now, what is it now, three generations? So obviously there's going to be a kind of desensitization that has taken place so that they don't yeah. even know what they're doing. You don't even, so if you allow that kid unfettered access to a cell phone, he's going to access pornography. It's that simple. That's what it's there for. And you didn't know that? Or, or you're so desensitized, you think it's good? Well, you know, I, you know we'll, we'll leave that to individual cases. 
you know, where you can either you're stupid or you're wicked. Uh, but uh, that's what happened. We can pull back from it. You can well, do this. The cure is Catholicism. The cure is Catholicism. Yes. So as, as they said, again, I'm going to repeat Chibota Catholica. If your country implements laws based on the French Revolution, you will wait in vain for liberation from Jewish hegemony. That's the story. That's the story of Germany. That's the story of Ireland. And now the this, this situation in Germany has become an existential situation. Like, are we going to die? Are we going to starve to death? Are we going to freeze to death in our apartments? And the, 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 the crucial uh, insight is the Americans did it to us. Hey, I thought that we were allies. These people are trying to destroy us. They never got over the Morgenthau plan. And the more we hand our foreign policy over to Jews, the more we're going to be destroying people who are supposed to be our friends. It's Ireland, too. Not just Germany. It's Ireland. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, you know, it's a lot. It's to do with the lifestyle. Once you give up all of these vices, then you become a much stronger person. You have a clear head and you're able to act rationally and you're able to fight for your culture and for your children's future. And I think this brings us back just before we end to the cover of your beautiful new book, The Dangers of Beauty, which is a picture of our Lord with Mary Magdalene. Explain what's happening here. Yeah, this is an early picture by Titian. It's a central, one of the central images in the book. So it's uh, it's called Noli Me Tangere. This is Mary Magdalene seeing the risen Christ for the first time. She's first one to see him. He's risen. Uh, she is uh, obviously in love with the Savior. Uh, she was a prostitute at one point. We all, the natural inclination of male and female is when they're in love is a, a, a unification, a sexual expression of that unity. And that's exactly the gesture that she's making. If you look at it, she's reaching for Christ's genitals. This is a whole new, Titian is adding a whole new area of psychological depth to what is a, a, famili a familiar, well-known uh, gospel story. She's reaching for his genitals. He puts his hand down there uh, to deflect that gesture. And because he deflects that gesture, her eyes rise up. And she's not looking at his crotch. She's looking at his heart. And then up to his up to his eyes. This is a, a, a stunning expression of the the sublimation of earthly desire that leads to to love of God. And it's an opt, it's an optimistic picture because it's saying it's possible that this is possible now with with redeemed human nature. It is possible to redeem these drives and turn them into something higher, namely love of God. Yes, I mean it's. I was not familiar with this painting and uh, when I first saw it as an Irish Catholic, I looked at it and I thought, I hope that's not supposed to mean what I think it does, because the idea of seeing Jesus in any sexual context to me is just, I can't even, you know, it's just completely anathema. But when it it is contextualized and you're using it to illustrate the theme of your book. I mean, the dangers of beauty. What what do you mean by that? The, the, now, for, first of all, I want to say 
that this is really daring. This is really culturally daring. I gave this talk to a bunch of Orthodox uh, young men, and I said, the, 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 the Italians broke with Greek models. That was the icon. Okay, the icon is what it is, got a gold background and so on and so forth. It's static. It's not dramatic, and it doesn't have this psychological engagement that this thing has here. So over this period of time that, uh, about the dangers of beauty, what is art? Art is mimesis. It's the imitation of nature. That's all it's ever been. It's all it's ever going to be. If it's not that, it's not art. And over this period of time, the Italians became so uh, sophisticated in reproducing nature that the, the images you proceed from Giotto, where the break took place, they're getting more and more realistic. Well, the more realistic it becomes, especially the portrayal of the female body, the more you're running the danger of arousing sexual passion or concupiscence. And that's precisely what happened. And it happened with Titian. There's, there's a picture in there. Uh, I don't, if you have the book there, you can show it. It's uh, Venus and the, and the Musician, uh, which, is not, which, which is not an optimistic painting at all because Titian was being dragged in. He, he, was, he could portray uh, female beauty in a, a, a stunning way. And there were patrons that simply wanted uh, pornography. And he well, was... What is the painting again? Venus and the, mus the Musician. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, continue. Sorry. Continue. And that is, that, is, that is not an optimistic painting because at this point, he feels himself being drawn into something that he doesn't, where he does not want to go. And I'm talking about pornography. And he was no stranger to pornography because he was, his best friend was the first pornographer in European history. I'm not talking about, you know, Pompeii, the mosaics on whorehouses. I'm talking about a mass-produced object. It was a book. He, they had woodcuts of uh, representation of pornography. They're in the book. You can sell the book. It's a printing press. It's cutting-edge technology, information technology. And his friend was doing it and making lots of money. And Titian is pulling back from that. How do you, how do you approach beauty without being sucked in by your... Uh, concupiscence, your, your sensual desires. That requires a lot of skill. And the Italians had that skill and they knew how to do it. And at this point, the church, all of Italy uh, uh, just spins into a crisis. The crisis is known as the Reformation. And at this point, you have the mercenaries who show up, German mercenaries aren't paid. When they don't get paid, they loot the city. And so they're looting Rome in 1525. And they take their horses into the Sistine Chapel. And they have never seen stuff. No one has ever seen stuff like the Sistine Chapel. All of those paintings, all these naked figures. Uh, there's Charon there taking people into hell. It was so, it's breathtaking, and it was even more breathtaking then, and it was stunning for a group of German peasants who were simply too too poor to do anything but, uh, you know, be involved in someone else's army. And so one of them wrote on the wall, another, not in the Sistine Chapel, another chapel wrote on the wall, Martin Luther, to show you his sympathies. And you have a crisis now because when they get back to Germany, you have iconoclasm. And suddenly the Reformation is destroying beautiful art uh, because of the excesses they've seen in Italy. It plays right into what Luther was saying. And the church is in a crisis mode right at this point. It's called generally called the Reformation, but there's an artistic version where the church is 
is there a role for sacred art? Is it always going to be too sensual and will always distract us from what we really should be doing, which is like what Mary Magdalene does, which is raises her eyes up to Christ's heart? Well, yeah. the church the church said, yes, it's possible. That's, they came out and said, yes, there is a role for art. They rejected both iconoclasm and pornography. There is something called art. It is beauty. It's a transcendental. It will help you understand God because that's one of the attributes of God. And they saved art for Europe. And the class, the example that I give, the most beautiful painting is Rubens, who helped restore churches after the iconoclasm that swept the, the Belgian storm that swept through uh, the Spanish Netherlands, and created that beautiful portrait of the Princess Spinola Doria. Yeah, I was talking to somebody today who was just back from their first trip to Italy, and they found it a little bit overwhelming in terms of the wealth of the, of the Catholic art and the, the churches and, you know, the excess, I suppose. And I begged to differ with him on that because uh, you know to me to be in these beautiful churches that appear around every corner when you're in an Italian town and you walk in and you know often you might have it completely to yourself and you're looking at this most magnificent renaissance art which is hundreds of years old and it connects you to God that is its purpose it brings you up right uh, this, this is so uh, car uh not Carla, Federico Borromeo was Carlo, Charles Borromeo's cousin. He was the man who basically formulated this thing. And he said he, he didn't like Michelangelo's uh, Sistine Chapel. He said it was inappropriate for a chapel. You shouldn't have all those naked figures in a chapel or pagan figures like Karen. But he said there was a role for it in private devotion. And one of the things he did mention was a, a portrait of um, Mary Magdalene, bare-breasted, okay, so it gives you some indication of what her former occupation used to be. But then you look at her eyes and her eyes are all red because she's been crying, because she's repenting for her sins. He felt that there was a role for this type of thing to encourage private devotion. In other words, you could just as like like Giotto did Christ asleep in the boat. And there's a guy there and he looks really scared. We're all going to die. Well, that's that type of psychological realism could also be uh, lead you to repentance for your sins. And that's that art had a role in that. It's bringing the Bible to life. It's making right. it real. You know, that's exactly what it was. Yes. Yeah. And our beautiful saints, you know, our beautiful statues. When we go into our churches and, you know, pray before a statue of Saint Dominic or Saint Anthony or Saint Catherine of Siena, and we contemplate their lives and the suffering, the wealth that they abandoned, the the rich families that they left to go and help uh, live among the poor and fight for justice and create the brilliant orders that they did. Um, you know, it, it helps us. It really helps us to connect with them and then to connect with God. So I think we, we really need to, it, this comes back to the beginning of our conversation. Our Catholic culture is all that we have. It's the most important thing as Irish people, as Europeans, and we've got to, Go back there first. And that, you know, once we salvage that, we're going to be fine. No right. question. No question. I, I think I said this earlier. I think that God is giving the Germans a second chance by saving that pipeline. 
this is God. Everyone thought it was gone completely. A sense of despair is setting in. No, there's one pipeline left. All the Germans have to do is end the sanctions to Russia and the, the energy will flow. That's God's mercy. That's God's mercy. And that mercy is available to all of us, but only if we take the, take the step, if we can respond to his grace and ask ourselves the question, do you want uh, pornography on your cell phone or would you rather have the Princess Spinola Doria, that type of art? Yeah. Which which do you think? Do you do you like uh, the the high rise, uh, Gropius Stadt in Berlin, these soulless high rise buildings, mm -hmm. or do you like those Italian villages, Cinque Terre, sort of perched on cliffs over the over the sea? All of that culture that came about because they had a thousand years uh, at least uh, of Catholic culture that taught them that beauty was important, more important than making money. Do you want to, is that what you, do you prefer this to that? I don't. That's it. You know, Protestantism has nothing to offer. All of these evangelical churches that have come into Ireland, they're not going to produce that beauty and they're not going to produce the culture because they don't know what they believe. We as Catholics know what we believe. And, you know, our belief system, in my opinion, is the best. You can't experiment, you can't kill babies. You can't experiment on humans. You can't break up a marriage. You can't, um, you can't, know. Can't blow up a pipeline. <laughs> you can't starve the German people yeah. to death. You can't starve the Irish people to death. Let's talk about the real fruits of this operation. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Listen, I'm going to let you go. We've gone over our hour. Thank you so much, You'll be back again next month with me, I hope. And the new book, Dangers of Beauty, culturewars.com, fidelitypress.org. Is it that yes, people can yes. get? Yeah. Yes. And I, I hope Irish people are ordering them because uh, if you're going to read anything, start with E. Michael Jones. So thank you so much again. And thank you to everyone who joined us as well. Sorry we couldn't get to the chat. Thank you, Gemma. Well, Always a pleasure to talk to you. Likewise. God bless, Mike. Thank you. Thank you.